Good morning, Grace. It's good to see you. Well, it's Palm Sunday, which commemorates Jesus' entry into Jerusalem for the conclusive week of his ministry, riding on a donkey, being welcomed by crowds who paved the way before him by laying down palm branches and their own cloaks, and shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But for this morning's sermon, we've sung our hosannas and we've got our palm branches, and now we're gonna kind of fast forward into that Passion Week to focus our attention on what actually happens there in Jerusalem. Jesus is condemned. He's condemned as deserving death. So we wanna pay very close attention this morning to how he is condemned and handed over because we wanna hear what God has to say to us in this moment. And we do have to listen closely because in this moment that we're gonna read in a second, Jesus is conspicuously silent. So we wanna hear from God even in that silence. Let's read the story of Jesus' pretrial before the high priest and the Sanhedrin. This is not the trial with Pontius Pilate, but the sort of arraignment or indictment, or I'm not sure what the right legal word is for it before that. But we're looking at Mark 14. Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 53. This uh, little vignette we're going to look at here starts with background noise and then shifts to silence. Then Jesus speaks and he's condemned. So noise, silence, speech, condemnation. Mark 14, 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself with a fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And so the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Well, the scene starts with noise, chaos, really. Everybody's talking at once, but not saying the same thing. Uh, This is supposedly a process for seeking the truth, but verse 55 lets us know that the men in charge were not, in fact, doing any truth-seeking. They were seeking, but they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. In their minds, the outcome is already decided. The only job now is to go through the right motions to find some way, any way, to charge and convict. I think Mark's gospel really lets us in on the complicated, confused, and self-contradictory noisiness of this pretrial. 
You can tell from this brief report what a stupid and chaotic mess the whole thing was. It must have been hard to find lying witnesses who could get their story straight. Like, why is that so hard? Because liars lie, right? Verse 56, many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. I mean, everybody knows the problem with lying, most of us from sad experience at trying the whole thing out. It seems easy. It usually seems like the easy way out, but it turns out to be a lot harder than telling the truth, right? I mean, when you tell the truth, you have over here what really happened, and then we make our words kind of line up with that. And if we exaggerate a little bit or leave something out or are just generally sloppy about how we tell it, we can go back to what really happened and realign our words with it better. Aligning our stories with what really happened can be hard work. But when we lie, we just abandon what really happened and we say something else on purpose. And then when we go back and check our work or check our story against some standard, there is no standard. And once you start lying, you're on the hook to memorize every lie you've ever told. So you can make all the other lies line up with that lie. So you have to enthrone the lie as the truth because you've given up the task of trying to match what really happened. Well, I mean, good luck with that. I want to say it's a young man's game because as you get older, it gets harder to remember which lies you told who, right? Before long, it splits you off into different versions of yourself that you have to keep track of in sort of different cinematic universes, universes that you check the continuity on all the time. You've established multiple timelines and you're jumping around in them like Loki. It's ridiculous. A liar doesn't even agree with himself except by sheer force of will, right? So imagine getting two or more liars to align themselves with the same nothing. Verse 57, some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. It doesn't even make sense. Was he going to use his feet? What kind of a claim is it? Right? Yep. Even about this, their testimony didn't agree. Why not? Because Je Jesus didn't say what they said he said. We know from Mark's gospel that he said, in Mark 13, 1, he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Well, that's a far cry from, I will destroy this temple. So if two liars are fabricating some dialogue for Jesus, of course they won't agree. In no time, you've got two liars with about five stories between them. So the accusations are flying around, contradicting, multiplying, and just creating a chaotic rage of noise. Many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. In all the noise, there was an obvious tendency or tide. It was all sort of heading chaotically in one direction. It was all against Jesus. They didn't quite agree with each other, but they could more or less agree against him. It's not very clear what they're for, but it's clear enough what they're against. Down with Jesus, up with, I don't know, something else. I visualize this hostile crowd as like a hundred-headed parrot squawking in every direction at the same time. As an illustration, I wanted to bring in a hundred-headed parrot as a visual aid, but I just couldn't find one. And besides, can you imagine how epically loud it would be to have one in the room with us? It would be like as loud as at least half a dozen Mr. Bananas. Like imagine, <laughs> imagine a bunch of that guy. Yeah, bunch, get it? Okay, but the point is, the mass of lying humans is behaving inhumanly, inhumanely, like some kind of mythical monster, like some kind of squawking hydra. 
Now, when the howling crowd is filling your head with noise and the noise is against Jesus, there are two things to consider. First, if you fly off the handle and just start shouting back at them, you actually can't win. And the reason you can't win is not just that you're outnumbered, it's worse than that. It's not just that there's a hundred parrots on one side and you on the other. It's that if you shout back, you're really just adding to the noise. You're actually joining the conspiracy of noisiness and raising the volume by one. You see, you're effectively becoming the 101st squawking parrot beak or the eighth duck or something like that. I was thinking about bringing in like an eight-headed duck, but it just wasn't as terrifying or as noisy as the... I also didn't have one, so, you know, it's it's all hypothetical. But in that melee, nobody cares or even notices if you happen to be the one shouting something different. All they know is you're shouting. Nobody thinks, oh, finally, somebody's speaking up for the other side. They think, oh, great, yet another person has joined in the squawking. So you're stuck. Second, noise is just that. It's noise. It has the force of quantity and volume on its side, but it lacks the power of truth. You have to find the power to shut out the noise of the lies and remind yourself what is true. It's very hard to remember this, but quiet truth is more permanent than noisy lies. So on the one hand, there's what the whole wide world thinks about something, and on the other hand, there's what God thinks about it. God plus one is a majority, no matter how many are on the other side. We're not engaged in a decibel contest as Christian witnesses, but in a truth contest. But this is the very hardest thing to remember when the decibel level gets cranked up. In that kind of noisy, competitive, dangerous setting, who has the strength to hold their tongue? Well, that brings us to silence. Jesus Christ has the power to stay silent. Verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. He remained silent. Can we just marvel at that for a moment? Silent in the face of false witnesses. Silent in the middle of all the noise. He remained silent even when they put a microphone in his face and goaded him. Have you no answer to make? Can you feel just the sheer power being generated by the calm, principled, self-possessed, confident, sovereign silence of Jesus? In this corner, the squawking monster parrot beast with a hundred beaks. And in this corner, the silent Jesus. The silent presence of the truth of Jesus is awesome. I don't even know how to represent it for you, but let me try. Here's a gift for you. Five seconds of silence. Okay, that's about all I can handle. That, I wasn't sure we were going to make it through all of that. Some of you were starting to like, weave on me. Um, thank you for your cooperation, though. It can drill a hole right through you. In the mouth of Jesus, silence is a powerful weapon. Over in Mark 15:4, in the next chapter, he uses it again, this time directed at Pontius Pilate, who can't stand it. Pilate asks him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. Quote, but Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Amazing silence, how sweet the not sound. 
Let me say three things here about the silence of Jesus. First of all, the silence Jesus wields here follows a great deal of teaching that he has already wielded throughout his life. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher. He was a talking man. He gave sermons. He instructed disciples. He spoke the truth over and over again, day in and day out, to many audiences in many settings. When he was arrested over in Mark 14, 49, he pointed this out. He said, day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me. Jesus's views were known. His silence had power, not only because of who he was or because of the life he lived, but also because of the thousands and thousands of words he had carefully spoken. So the silence of Jesus that we're standing in awe of is not some kind of absolute silence, but strategic, targeted silence. It's not an inarticulate secrecy about what he believes. It's the piercingly articulate silence of one who has already spoken the truth with utter adequacy and perfect accuracy. If you try hard enough, you can ignore the voice of Jesus Christ. Just crank up the noise and drown out the sound of that voice. But how can you ever get away from the silence of this one who has spoken the truth perfectly? It's always there waiting to get you right under the noise. Second thing about the silence of Jesus. If we study his ways and learn how to imitate him and imitate him in his silence, then we'll hold our tongues the same way Jesus did, but not in the way that Peter did. I don't know if you noticed Peter when I read the story the first time. You, you could be excused for not noticing him because he was hiding. In Mark 1454, it says, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. You might not have noticed him because he was trying very hard not to be noticed. He followed Jesus at a distance. That sounds bad. And he mingled in with the guards. Peter was keeping quiet, but he was not imitating the silence of his Lord. Jesus' principled silence was a piercing communication of the truth. But Peter's silence was sheer cowardice, a strong desire to preserve his zone of relative safety for as long as he could by keeping his head down. Blending in with the crowd, making sure he wasn't caught up uh, in the same dragnet of fate as Jesus, trying to be a disciple but avoiding the consequences following Jesus at a distance. Is this being too harsh on Peter? Are we reading too much into his silence? No, because when he's goaded into talking, he talks. And what he says is, well, yikes is what he says. He says of Jesus, quote, I do not know this man, Mark 14, 71. So Mark strikingly reminds us that there is bad silence. Not just any silence will do, but the silence of Jesus is what we're after. We have to learn this obedient, eloquent silence from Jesus as we have to learn from him how to speak at the right time and what to say at the right time. In Matthew 10, Jesus tells his disciples, when they hand you over, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. In that hour, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. The spirit of your father, says Jesus Christ, a Christian's self-defense will be a Trinitarian eloquence. Third thing about the silence of Jesus. It's not marginal to what he's doing, but it's central to his work of salvation. It is a key part of the prophecies about him. Isaiah prophesied of the suffering servant of God, 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. That prophecy is being fulfilled right here in our passage in Mark 14. And then notice how it fits the pattern of Jesus' work. Our theme for Passion Week is from 1 Peter 1.11, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. We could look into the weakness of Jesus and the power to follow. We could look at the shame of Jesus and the honor to follow, the confusion about Jesus and the clarity to follow. These are all ways of capturing the Passion Week dynamic of the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection to follow, of Good Friday and Easter Sunday to follow. And what we have here in our passage is the silence of Christ and the revelation to follow. And what about that revelation that followed? That swings us over from silence to speech. One last time it says the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And finally, Jesus decides that the time has come to reply. After all the chaos and contradiction and commotion, he speaks a couple dozen words. Verse 62, Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Okay, again, wow. When Peter was silent and then said something, the words he spoke revealed that he was a weasel. But when Jesus was silent and then said something, the words he spoke revealed that he had been contemplating the highest, greatest, deepest, most important things. Matters of direct relevance to what was happening all around him. What came out of his mouth was the word of God from the Old Testament. Can I give you just a a little general uh, rule here for understanding Jesus? Here it is. If you ever wonder what Jesus is thinking about, it's probably the Old Testament. Like, that's usually what he's thinking about. In story after story from the Gospels, when you see him do something and you wonder what's on his mind, as soon as he opens his mouth, he shows that he has been pondering and meditating on the word of God in his heart. That's why people are always scrambling to catch up with him, because he's like coming in out of Psalm 98 and just making a remark. So in this case, he confesses that he is the son of the blessed God, and he says, verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 62, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now I wanna look into that just a little bit. It's just a couple dozen words, but we don't have anywhere near the time it would take to get down to the bottom of these words. We gotta make sure we get some grasp of what he says here though. Basically, Jesus has served up a prophecy sandwich. He's taken one prophecy from Daniel 7, opened it up, and put Psalm 110 into it. So Daniel 7 bread, Psalm 110, meat. I could have put that more reverently, like he has woven together the overall voice of prophecy or something like that. But I want you to get the way that he opened up one prophecy and put another one into the middle of it. Let's start with the bread. You will see the Son of Man, dot, 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 coming with the clouds of heaven. These words are from the amazing night visions of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. But to catch what's going on with Daniel 7, 13, you've got to get a slightly bigger and, I'll admit it, weirder picture. Listen to this prophecy, Daniel 7. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. 
Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. That's very strange. That's the kind of stuff they tell you is going to be in the Old Testament. There it is, Daniel 7. It gets weirder. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on his back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. You know, like a leopard with four heads. After this, I saw the night vision and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. He goes on for a while there, but that's enough. And if you want to see these guys, just Google Daniel's vision image search. It's really something else. I mean, not only is it amazing prophecy, but it attracts amazing illustrators, the kind of person who would paint that kind of thing. Yeah. So we have a churning chaotic ocean, and we have strange, symbolic, monstery monsters coming out of all that commotion. If we were doing a Daniel study, we'd spend some time interpreting these beasts, but for now, it's enough to say they represent the disorderly dictatorships of mighty empires ruling over all the people of the earth. So I know I'm asking you to do something very difficult, which is to ignore the wild and fascinating details of the vision I just read to you. I feel like I just showed you a four-headed leopard and a bear with ribs in its mouth. Uh, and now I'm saying, please ignore the four-headed leopard and the bear with ribs in its mouth. This has got to be very difficult. Keep your hands inside the tram until we've come to a full and complete stop. But it is very important that we not get lost in those details and we apprehend the big picture here. The big picture is the fact that world history is like a churning ocean with a succession of mighty monster bosses running things. That is the noisy, inhuman backdrop for the vision Daniel has next. And here it is, Daniel 7, 9. As I looked, thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, after this chaotic beachside monster zoo parade, finally here's some good news. Somebody human finally steps up to take charge. That's what one like a son of man means in this vision. You watch all these crazy multiple-headed monster things coming out, behaving inhumanely, running the world like monsters would, and then finally, someone human shows up, and you think, nice, that's great, because humans are supposed to rule the world, right? Not animals, and certainly not humans acting like animals, right? So finally, when a son of man steps up, that alone is good news. And the Ancient of Days, the eternal God, gives dominion over all to this one like a son of man. It's a happy ending, especially if you've been one of the nations or peoples subjected to the inhuman and dehumanizing rule of the chaos regime. Now, if you're picking up what Jesus is laying down here, are you with me? You probably caught the part of the prophecy he's quoting in Mark 14. With the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man. And you may also have noticed when that son of man came with the clouds of heaven. When the court sat in judgment, 
and the books were opened. So here's the bread of the prophecy sandwich. Jesus is at his pretrial. Witnesses are testifying against him. And when asked if he's the son of God, he says essentially, yep. And when a real court sits in judgment and the books are really opened, you're going to see me, the son of man from Daniel 7, coming with the clouds of heaven. It's a great reply. And that's just the bread of the prophecy sandwich. Are you ready for the meat in the middle? Into that Daniel prophecy about the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, Jesus drops the oracle that we will see him seated at the right hand of power. From Psalm 110, verse 1. You will see the Son of Man, from Daniel 7, seated at the right hand of power, from Psalm 110, and coming with the clouds of heaven, Daniel 7. That's the package. The first verse of Psalm 110 is the single passage of the Old Testament most often quoted in the New Testament. Would you have gotten that right on Jeopardy? Psalm 110, verse 1, the one that occurs the most. Everybody refers to it. Jesus himself, the apostles in Acts, Paul in his letters, Peter in his first letter, and especially Hebrews, they all make constant reference to this Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's obviously a psalm about the Messiah and about how God exalts the Messiah to co-enthronement beside him and puts down his enemies. Sit at my right hand, says the Lord to this Messiah. Jesus disputed with other Bible interpreters over the detailed interpretation of this psalm. And after his resurrection and ascension, the apostles knew for certain that it was all about Jesus. After Jesus died for our sins, God had raised him from the dead and enthroned him at his own right hand. This was like the main point of the story of Jesus, and all the apostles knew it and wrote it down. That's why Psalm 110.1 is the most quoted passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament. He is not in the grave, but on the throne at the right hand of the power. Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. 1 Peter 3.22 he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Hebrews 1.11, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand with the majesty on high. Hebrews 10.12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In Hebrews 12, we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If I was a junior jam around it, I would have memorized all those for you and just given them to you. But, but I read them. Brothers and sisters, the first verse of Psalm 110 practically preaches itself. If you have a Bible or a Bible app with good cross-references, just go to Psalm 110, verse 1, and look up every New Testament reference to it listed there. Just read straight through them and preach it to yourself. It really works. It's there. Our Jesus is not in the grave, but is on the throne with the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, as we get into Passion Week, we, we tend to call it something like the final week of Jesus's life. And it's always a little weird, like, well, I know what we mean by that. It's like the, the final week of his uh, ministry on earth before the ascent into heaven. But final week makes it sound like he's done and died and is gone, like other people who are done and died and are gone. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, of all the many things Jesus said, and he said some great things, you know what my favorite short quote from Jesus is? I like the part where he says, I was dead. 
It's a really cool sentence, right? Not, not very many people can say, I was dead. He doesn't say it until Revelation, but he comes along and says, by the way, I was dead. Um, so we're talking about his final week in this sense of the, of the final week of his ministry on earth, culminating in his resurrection and then ultimately his ascension. And here in his brief defense before the high priest, following his intense strategic silence, Jesus drops that phrase from that one verse into the middle of Daniel's vision of one like the Son of Man being given authority by the Ancient of Days. So what's the result of this prophecy sandwich? Well, it sets up Passion Week in a powerful way. We all know that Jesus is about to be condemned, bound, led away, tortured, mocked, crucified, and buried. But here, right on the very cusp of all that happening, he gives us the key to understanding it correctly. As bad as death on a cross is, and it's very bad, no illusions there about any of that, Jesus goes to it with a higher vision of what's happening and why it's happening. You see, the Son of Man who came to restore real order and who is bound for the right hand of God is not accidentally stumbling his way into a tragic mistake that turns out bad. He's not being dragged away kicking and screaming, looking around desperately for a way out. He doesn't look like he's in charge, but this invocation of prophecy lets us know that he is in charge. Over in John chapter 10, he makes the same point this way. John 10, 17. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. That's Passion Week in two steps, right? The sufferings of Christ, I lay down my life. The glories to follow, I take it up again. We've got to be able to understand it as one movement. Here at the pretrial, if we were to ask Jesus, how can you stand to be silent in the face of lies? It's as if he's answered here, well, it's because I'm the son of man who Daniel saw and will be enthroned at the right hand of the father. Like, have some perspective. It's enough to leave you speechless, but the high priest, unfortunately, is not speechless. And that brings us to Jesus' condemnation. Mark 14, 63. The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So all of a sudden, instantly, just forget about all that he said he'd tear down the temple nonsense. We don't need that anymore. The charge they settle on is blasphemy. And now begins, as Jesus knew full well it would, the steep descent, not just into punishment, but into just plain old cruelty, mockery, and meanness. I mean, the guards beating on him is one thing. That's bad enough. But spit? Like you beat on someone, you know, to hit them. That kind of makes sense in a rude, violent, vulgar way. But spit is just spit. It's just gratuitously insulting. Covering his face and striking him and asking him to prophesy? Sounds like something the worst big brother in the world would do, right? Who hit you? Who hit you? Who hit you? Uh, but followed by them killing you. That would be really bad. Covering his face, uh, striking him. And this kind of thing goes on from here until his death. We see in Mark that he endures shameful mockery all the way to the cross. In chapter 15, verses 16 to 20, the guards greet him with, Hail, King of the Jews! Give him a satirical purple robe. Hit him more, spit on him more, and kneel down pretending to worship him. Even on the cross, the passers-by taunt him. 
Mark 15, 29. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. You recognize it? It's all that noise again. There was just one little lull in the noise, and now we're back to it. The nonstop, multi-voiced, hundred-headed parrot shrieking that we heard in the beginning. But now it's louder, and it's more obviously lethal. In Handel's Messiah, that great 18th century oratorio, he depicts the crucifixion using a line from Psalm 22, which he pictures the mockers using against Christ. He trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him if he delights in him. And if you know the music, you know how it goes. It's a fugue. So that same line gets repeated over and over with different voices entering at all different times as if they're stumbling over each other. The soprano up here and the bass down here tumbling around saying dozens of times the same line. Let him deliver him. He trusted. He trusted God. If he delights in him, let him deliver him. Deliver him. He trusted. It's Handel, so he makes it beautiful, of course. But it's a wall of complicated looping and cycling sound. And Jesus is once again silent. But listen, the very words of the mockers are true. Jesus did trust in God. And God did delight in him. And God did deliver him. Now, on his own schedule, which I think was surprising to everybody, um, he didn't deliver him from the cross, but through the cross, from the grave. God delivered him all the way from the grave. How all the way from the grave? to the right hand of the power on high. It's a surprising reversal. The condemnation turns out to be prophetic. The one who seems rejected by God turns out to be resurrected by God. And the one who is on trial turns out to be the one who is the judge. You might remember Al Pacino has a great line in the old courtroom drama called Injustice for All, where he speaks up in court and is told by the judge, you're out of order, and he famously replies, really loud in uh, Al Pacino style that I won't try to imitate. You're out of order, and you're out of order. I'm not out of order. This whole trial is out of order. That's what we've got in Mark 14, but not that kind of drama. The whole trial is out of order, but Jesus doesn't go all Al Pacino on it. He doesn't even go Tony Stark, I'm Iron Man. He, he doesn't make the kind of impressive reply that we would normally expect to really be something like filmable. What's he do? This judged judge, this judge judged in our place. He's silent a long time, and then he speaks the truth of God's word. It's not especially dramatic, and to be honest, you know the newspapers probably reported that the next day that, quote, the convicted man mumbled some Bible verses, but they were all mixed up and not obviously relevant to anything. And that's the story they went with, and that's what people thought. But the high priest, who thought he was passing sentence on Jesus, was in fact the one on trial, and sentence was being passed on him. In holding up Jesus to standards of what counts as true and holy, and declaring that Jesus doesn't match up to that standard, this council was condemning themselves and the entire system of using the standards they used in the way they used them. It's hard to know what to compare this to. It's like any trial that results in real palpable injustice. It reflects poorly on the court. To use a really trivial example, it would be like announcing that you were gonna start the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but you were intentionally leaving out Elvis, the Beatles, and the Rolling Stones. It's a silly example, but would that damage the reputation of Elvis, the Beatles, and the Rolling Stones? No, it would show that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to have no credibility as an institution. When the truth shines forth, 
I don't mean the truth of rock and roll, but, you know, go with me. When the truth shines forth, those who condemned the truth are manifestly self-condemned by that truth. So two points of application here to take away with us. First, the whole scene where Jesus is on pre-trial and his status is being disputed and his fate is being decided, I hope it feels personally familiar. I think all of us are in danger of approaching Jesus as if we are the deciders about him. We almost can't help but act like we're the ones considering Jesus' credentials and making a judgment about whether he matches up to our standards. What I mean is, we think we're rendering a decision about Jesus. Like, does, he, does he fit in? Is he trustworthy? Do I really want to commit? Will he deliver? Should I obey, should I obey all his commands? Or can I draw up a little sublist of the ones which I think he happens to be right about? Does he deserve to be my Lord? Or should I maybe demote him a little below Lord to something like inspiration? Like, is that, is that where he fits? It's up to me to decide that, right? No, it only feels like it's up to you to decide that. That's not how any of this works. And, and if you're with us this morning, uh, at some point in your journey of considering following Jesus and just opening up to the possibility of trusting him, I know you're in the position of checking him out, seeing if he's the real deal, um, seeing if he's trustworthy, making that decision. Well, what I want to advise you is do it. Trust him. He'll prove himself. Ask his friends. Check us out. Read about him. As you get to know him, you will look back and see that at this very moment when you were deciding about him, you weren't so much subjecting him to your almighty powers of scrutiny and judgment as you were coming under his judgment and becoming aligned with his standard as the truth is in Jesus. Second application is this. It's a noisy world. In order to keep our heads on straight in a culture of horrific commotion and distraction, we need to have our attention focused on exactly the same thing Jesus did his own exaltation and glorification. Notice, not on our own. We don't, we don't imitate Jesus by focusing on our own future. We've got we've to go out of ourselves first and think not in something in a way that's sort of like parallel to what Jesus was doing, but think about exactly the thing Jesus was thinking about, his exaltation. And this is the week to do that as a church with all our might. Come to church several times, today, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and we'll focus together on the absolutely central realities of the faith. I mean, this is the whole deal. On the one hand, it's just a few extra church services with some special features and a special week. But on the other hand, but I mean, sometimes like singing kids waving palm branches. You got to come for that, right? But on the other hand, it's the main event, the death and resurrection of Jesus the Lord. Lean into it. Church it up with all your might. Palm fronds, Easter event with the children's ministry, Lord's Supper service tonight, the cross, the empty tomb, the whole deal. Special silence, special music, special whatever it takes to fix our eyes on Jesus. You know, child psychologists talk about object permanence. You know this thing? When, the, when an infant begins to be aware that things continue to exist as realities, even when they're not directly present to the senses, um, they, they, things go away but still have reality. Now, you're supposed to have this all wrapped up and be totally an expert at it by age two, which is why it's only like younger kids who are really fun to play peekaboo with because they like really wonder where you went. But later on, they've got it totally figured out like, I've seen this, you're behind your hands. You continue to exist when you're not immediately evident to my senses. Yeah, it, it's all fun and games with two-year-olds, but the thing is, 
I think all of us need drills to practice our theological object permanence. I mean, Jesus is on the throne, but I cannot see him with my eyes. Almost nobody has. Stephen the martyr in Acts chapter 7 did for a moment. I need to believe it to be true, and I need your help to believe it to be true since I can't see it. Jesus has spoken and speaks now in his word, but I cannot hear his voice with my own ears here in the room with me. I need to hear him in his very present silence as he strongly, sovereignly, articulately communicates the same faithful witness of love and forgiveness. And for that, we need each other's help. And we need God's help. Will you join me in prayer? God, help us to hear you and to obey you at all times. Train us to see and hear Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen.